Are underdogs the best thing about sports? We'll find out this week on Iceman and Coach. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Iceman and Coach. It is the second week of March. This is Matt Freights, the Iceman. That is the coach, Brad Powell, if you're watching on YouTube. Coach, welcome to the show, my man. Iceman, it is March Madness, and I could not be more excited. And on top of that, one thing near and dear to my heart, we call it March Madness in the wrestling world as the NCAA Division One wrestling finals are taking place in Tulsa, Oklahoma this weekend. I'm really excited about that. You know, kind of have that layered right on top of uh, the NCAA tournament, the basketball tournament action this weekend. And, you know, a little personal side bit, the uh, Bradley Braves, my team, to get into the NIT, and they will be traveling to uh, Madison, Wisconsin. By the time you folks listen to this, that game will probably already be in the books. Uh, it is Tuesday night. They will be taking on the Badgers. Really excited about that. I think it's a pretty good matchup for them. Things could get interesting after that, though. Um, I don't. I stayed up late to watch the selection show, and Tom Crane actually picked them to come out of their uh, their bracket to go to the Final Four of the NIT. But side note, he was Brian Wardle's uh, college coach, and is kind of one of his mentors. So I think he might be a little biased. So first round upset is what I'm hearing. I mean, if yeah, I mean, if you consider Bradley beating Wisconsin an upset, I mean, I think that it's. It wouldn't surprise me if this thing comes out. I haven't seen the line. I'm sure it'll be out in the morning uh, if it isn't out already. I, I mean, I bet it's within a couple points, uh, probably for sure. Well, that will be interesting for you. Before we get started, though, we have a little bit of news. And below, if you're watching on YouTube, is our new call-in number. And that is 703-718-6314. And that is for all of you listening in the podcasting space. We want you to call. We want to hear your takes. No matter how bad they are, Keep them a little bit clean, though. Maybe don't take any personal shots against us, but we'd love to hear from you, so please contact the show, no matter how it is that you consume the show. And you're right, man, it is March Madness. But before we get into that, though, the theme of underdogs is something that I opened the show with, and last night I was watching the Oscars. Now, the Oscars was, or at least at one time, it was an event that kind of transcended popular culture. It was really like the event of all events. And yes, if you're listening or watching this, you're probably thinking it's just a bunch of rich people with an excuse to get dressed up to go and hang out together. But there is a lot of work that goes into those films. And no matter what it has turned into now, it used to be the popular films and the high money-making films would actually be the films that were good. And at the Oscars, it sort of shifted away from that now, where the movies that people don't see are the ones that go to the Oscars. But I bring this up because last night, as a child of the 80s and 90s, I'm watching two people accept their awards, and there were obviously more, and I'm watching Ki Hui Kwong, you know him as the kid from the Goonies, and you know him as the kid from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and then I watched Brendan Fraser accept the Best Actor Award, and both of these guys are underdogs, really, in a great sense. I mean, the kid basically was out of Hollywood for 20-something years, gets this role he had been giving, giving up, basically, and he wins Best Supporting Actor. And Brendan Fraser had been obviously a huge hit in the 90s, a lot of high, he was a leading man in the 90s in a lot of franchises, and then all of a sudden he just sort of disappeared. And as a child of the 80s and 90s, seeing that happen and seeing the emotion, the real emotion on their face, we talk about sports and how great it is and the emotion that comes with winning a championship or or accomplishing something. And seeing that, it just, it really almost brought me to tears. And I wanted to bring that up here because I don't know how you feel about The Goonies, for instance, but it's a movie that I watched as a kid and I'll always watch it. Uh, but I also know that you have a Brendan Fraser take. Hey, you guys. Um, I love The Goonies, man. You guys better watch it. We get too excited here. You might see a little truffle shuffle, but that's horrifying. Talking about, you know, you mentioned some of the things that, that these two gentlemen have been through in their lives. Um, you know, one being a deep supporting actor throughout his entire career since his childhood. And then Brendan Fraser, obviously going from being a leading man and then having to go through some of the worst adversity possible. Uh, and usually once adults sort of phase out of Hollywood, especially under circumstances like that, you don't see them resurface, you know, especially in a relevant way. 
And, you know, you know me, man, the coach loves that. I mean, these guys are exhibiting that AFC North grit. They've had to uh, to get to this point. And I can only imagine, you know, there's a lot of rumors that get thrown around about what the the underbelly of Hollywood might be like in terms of how hard it might be for certain people to work their way up because it is sort of a good old boys club and who you know and who owes you a favor and this and that. And to see these guys uh, overcome a lot of those things and just simply get by on good old-fashioned hard work and talent is impressive. And, you know, you said I do have a Brendan Fraser take, and that is uh, he was a quote-unquote leading man in one of the worst sports movies I've ever seen, and that is The Scout, if you have not seen it. He plays a a pitcher named Steve Nebraska who is lives somewhere in, like, Central America in this really, like, podunk town. And uh, they, of course, play baseball, as they do everywhere in Central America. And a scout for the New York Yankees sort of uh, makes a bad a bad move, a bad pick, a bad recommendation. He gets exiled to this, you know, what they perceive as this wasteland of baseball. And uh, he comes across Steve Nebraska. And he, of course, throws the ball a million miles an hour, but he's very eccentric, very unique, very uncultured when it comes to, like, American culture. And it, it, it's it's interesting in ways, but it's just a really bad movie all around. And uh, it I, I would say that uh, I, I was going to say it's worth your time, but it really isn't. You might be able to find the, a trailer for it somewhere that would probably that would probably do the trick. I mean, if you're planning on calling in the show, perhaps watching the movie and either agreeing with or disagreeing with the coach's take on that, maybe maybe that's a good use of your time. So definitely think about it. But again, I brought it up because the emotion over the weekend. I was watching a lot of golf. It, the players was on it. We're not going to deep dive into that at all, but. You know, it's you know, it's amazing is whenever something happens in sports and the reaction from the players or the athletes or whoever is so jubilant that you realize that, number one, everybody is a kid at some point, And number two, that's hard as shit to do. And whenever a guy gets a hole in one, they celebrate like they've won the Masters because these guys are the top less than one percent of people who can do this internationally and getting a hole in one is nearly impossible still. Absolutely. Getting a hole-in-one is nearly impossible. But what one of the best things about the game of golf is that even a schmuck like me who, who doesn't play as much as I'd like to and I'm not very good can luck my way into a great shot once in a while. And so it's one of those things that anyone can achieve, but very few people do achieve it. And it's it's almost impossible to replicate. Um, that Yeah, of course, there's a lot of skill behind it, especially at that level. But uh, there's just it just takes a lot of luck. And I think that's why you see the emotion, the outpouring of emotion, because they know how rare it is and how unique it is to happen. And I love that. That's my favorite part about sports. Every part of it, whether it's fandom or playing it, is just the emotion that gets wrapped up in it. Absolutely. And to segue to the NCAA tournament, at the Oscars last night, you had the underdog stories, and then you had Jamie Lee Curtis, who basically wins a Body of Work Award, a Lifetime Achievement Award, by finally winning an Oscar. First time nominated, first time win. And when I look at the NCAA tournament bracket, the selection show was last night. I did watch it. You did hold out on us, though, and didn't tell us that the head of the selection committee works at Bradley University. Like, when were you going to friggin' tell us that? You know, honestly, it didn't even occur to me. I knew it. Um, it's always been in my in my brain up there with the other useless bits of information. But yeah, he's the vice president of intercollegiate athletics at Bradley, a.k.a. the athletic director. I think they've jazzed up the title and given, given him some more responsibility, possibly. But yeah, Chris Reynolds, uh, head of the committee, has been for a couple of years. He's a really sharp guy. I tell you, a school like Bradley's very, very lucky to have him. Um, he's from Peoria originally, which is probably a big part of why he's still here. But he spent time at Northwestern in Indiana. I believe he may have played for Bobby Knight at Indiana, if I'm not mistaken. He made a final four. Yeah, and um, but... Yeah, I mean, Bradley's lucky to have him, and obviously to see uh, just to see Bradley on the national scale, even if it's not for what they're doing on, on the floor, um, just to kind of have a voice in the room is pretty cool. Yeah, I thought so. And when they showed it, they showed Bradley University, and I thought, wait, this guy played there? Like, that's amazing to have the head <laughs> of the selection committee. But the selection committee has a hard job. And last week, maybe I did take a little bit of a crap on conference tournaments and all that, because I do feel like in some respects it is extra basketball just for the sake of extra basketball. But once we get the selection show and you realize that they have crafted this tournament bracket that is really difficult to do and how much work they have to do to get to it, I realize that he is the perfect man for the job because they're asking him, why did you choose this team over this team? And he had concise answers, but actually 
relevant answers. Hey, they had chances recently to up their resume and they failed to do so. But when I'm looking at the bracket as a whole, as somebody who, again, is 40 years old now and grew up in a different time in sports, and we know that collegiate athletics has completely changed now. The way that they recruit, everything is different. I'm looking at the top two tiers, the number one seeds and the number two seeds, and it's a lot of schools that traditionally haven't been there. The schools that you and I grew up basically assuming we're going to be one or two seeds, Duke, North Carolina schools like that, they're not in the top tier anymore. They have transitioned because longstanding coaches like Coach K have retired. The game is being handed over to a new crop of coaches. But there are still some people out there like Tom Izzo, who's sort of buried in the bracket somewhere. Rick Pitino, the vampire, is at Iona. He may be the next St. John's coach. But that's what I took away, is that this is sort of a new wave of college basketball. A lot of schools that have not traditionally been known are now at the top, and this is the future. Yeah, and you're seeing some teams from the South, from the SEC in particular, with Alabama getting the number one overall seed in the tournament. Um, Then, of course, Houston. Now, Houston does have a little bit of a basketball history, you know, the whole five five slamma-jamma days back with Akeem Olajuwon and those guys. Um, But, yeah, it's been a little bit since they've, they've been on this level for sure, and they spent most of the season as number one in the country. And you talked about conference tournaments and how relevant they are. Houston, Kansas, and Purdue all basically played themselves out of a crack at the number one overall seed by losing their conference championship games and uh, Alabama won their uh, title game. You're right. It is. It's a new crop, but Kansas is the only what I'd consider like blue blood that is uh, that is on the number one seed line. Uh, Purdue's not they're, they're kind of on the periphery of the blue bloods, I would say, being in the Big Ten. And, and they've got some tradition there, but um, maybe not what you'd expect you know, or you would associate with a Michigan State or a Michigan, Indiana, someone like that. That's just something that struck me. But I wanted to ask you, and I know this is not basketball related, but the number one overall seed, you mentioned Alabama. And I would say that the last month or so for Alabama basketball has been tumultuous at best. And yes, they have been winning. So it hasn't been tumultuous on the court, but it has been off the court. And all of the things swirling around that program with an ex-player who has now been, I believe, convicted of murder and their best player on the team team who, through many testimonies, seems to be the person who gave him the gun that ended somebody's life. And this is a very complicated matter. And their coach seemed to stumble at every turn when asked about this. Didn't seem like he was thinking about it in any sort of contrite way. And I just found the whole thing very uncomfortable. And then you find out that there is a handful of students, only a handful, this is not the fan base at all, are wearing t-shirts that say, killing our way through the SEC tournament 2023. That's about as tone deaf as you can get. But I wanted to ask you, because we've talked morals on here before, how do you feel about this kid still playing on this team? And it sort of, to me, feels very, this is the culture of winning and this is what we're going to do until he's basically behind bars. So my initial reaction is Alabama is selling their soul for a shot at a NCAA basketball championship. That that's my initial reaction. Now to dig a little deeper, I I think obviously not knowing the the scale of whatever evidence is there, just what we've been told through the media. If you're the university and no formal charges have been brought against this young man, and and it, it's still an investigation that's ongoing, do you take this away from that young man and his teammates? I mean, because he's the best player, one of the best players on the team. Do, do you take this opportunity away from all of them? And then let's say things somehow his name gets cleared, you know, six months down the road and you can't give that back, right? If this indeed does pan out and end up being something that some responsibility with this does fall on his lap in a legal sense, he'll have to pay the piper, uh, so to say, uh, whether it's falling or falling out of completely, maybe the NBA draft, maybe some sort of formal charges come against him. I, I don't feel good about it. It's so tough to make a statement with too much conviction without really knowing the evidence. And I understand like it's absolute what happens terrible. It, it's just tricky. But on the surface, it feels really dirty. It just brings to light that all of these instances that seem to have gun violence, it's just kind of crazy to me that so many athletes seem to go down that road. And it's not just this Alabama kid. It's John Morant. It's others. And it's just so disturbing. And I guess you're right, though. If there are no formal charges, what are they supposed to do? I hear what you're saying, though. And I think that in the end, what will be will be justice will be served in some way. It's just when you have something that's a murder around their program, It's so uncomfortable. And I go back to Aaron Hernandez and think about all the things that we found out he was doing while he was at Florida. And we've asked ourselves, what did Urban Meyer know? He had to have known something was going on because the second life that he led was just so crazy. 
This situation sounds like it was some kind of a misunderstanding, but man, when somebody's life is taken, it just feels so much different. It feels so grave. And I don't know, I'm not gonna not root for the kid or not root for Alabama, but I think you're absolutely right. When you're staring at the football team with how many national championships, the basketball team hasn't been relevant in maybe ever. This is their chance. This might be their only chance and they're gonna take it. And I guess I can't really blame them. I mean, in another layer of this is... A university, most universities do have a a code of conduct or code of ethics or honor code or something like that. So even without any formal charges, I assume that just the association with his association with the incident would violate any credible code of ethics or conduct that may exist at most universities. That being said, unfortunately, more and more these days, college sports is big business and you have high dollar donors behind these programs. The people who are in control of these universities from an administrative standpoint, they're sort of in the palm of some of these donors sometimes. I'm not saying this is the case, but it's a possibility there may be a a multi-million dollar donor somewhere in Alabama that's said, if you if you take this kid off the floor, I'm pulling my support. You know, that's a significant amount of money to pull. I'm, and I'm not saying, again, that that is the case, but it, that's sort of the the climate and the culture that exists amongst major sports programs at these colleges these days, unfortunately. And that's not really going to change. I mean, if the donors don't come out and say that they have a problem with it, and in Alabama, they probably wouldn't, then what what's the coach supposed to do? He just should have handed it a little bit better in the media. But let's switch to the basketball. And some of the other takeaways that I had, and this is an old man boomer sort of take, it's not even a negative take, but as I'm listening to Greg Gumbel call out these teams and call it their conferences, my mind is just all screwed up because they're calling out conferences that in basketball I have associated with so many other teams. Like, I can't remember who they said was the Conference USA champion, and I automatically was like, oh, that used to be Cincinnati way back in the day. It's not anymore. And that's just something that I've realized over time. And I don't think that I've really paid as much attention until we started doing this show and talking about all this realignment stuff is that so many things have changed. And then I think what put sort of a stamp on that was Jim Beheim retiring from Syracuse. I think they sort of asked him to leave. There was a whole awkwardness with that press conference. But Jim Beheim pretty much is the last vestige of the old guard in college basketball. I mean, Tom Izzo is that as well. But man, Jim Beheim had been there for 47 years and he represents what was Big East basketball. Big East basketball is nothing like it was. And Marquette was great this year. But you and I probably remember Big East basketball being at Madison Square Garden, being the classic teams, your Georgetowns, your UConn, schools like that, St. John's. And it's just not like that anymore. And I think I don't have an issue with it. It just struck me, though, that we really are in a new era of college basketball, so much so that the coaches that we've always sort of leaned on to know in the NCAA tournament, they're not there anymore. And Jim Beheim should have retired a long time ago, like I said last week. But, man, 47 years at the same school. Think about how much has changed in college basketball in that time frame. Yeah, that's incredible. And there's a great ESPN 30 for 30 uh, called Requiem of the Big East talks about the history of the conference, how they developed and everything else. It's really interesting. But to watch that and you just you see Jim Beheim and he's kind of built up to be this larger than life um, icon. And he really has been. And to see him go out the way he did is sad, you know, because Coach, Coach K kind of got he got to go out the right way and on his own terms. I think that Jim Beheim, as much as some people don't care for him, I think that he deserved and has earned that right to go out on his own terms. And maybe he's had that opportunity and just chosen not to. Uh, Who knows what's happened behind closed doors and meetings at Syracuse. But it's sad to see it happen the way it did. But you're right. A lot of the old guard is gone. And it'll be interesting who sort of rises up to, you know, kind of take the throne per se. I know, I mean, Bill Self's been around for a while at Kansas, but he's still got a ways to go, I think, before he's really getting up there. And there's a couple others, but it'll be interesting to see where we sit, you know, in five, 10 years, like who, who, who replaces them on the, in the hierarchy of uh, college basketball coaches. And the landscape of college sports is going to change even more in that time period to the point that we may not even recognize what the NCAA tournament looks like anymore. But another story that kind of piqued my interest is Marquette. And I mentioned them a little bit earlier about the Big East. And I completely forgot that their head coach is Shaka Smart, a guy who took VCU, local university around here, to the Final Four, cashed that in for the job at Texas, didn't do very well, got fired, and he goes back to Marquette, is redeeming himself, 
And this is a legitimately great basketball team. And I think it's amazing because they had Shaka Smart and Chris Beard, who seem to be polar opposites in terms of what they are personally. And I love seeing stories like that, man. We talked about underdogs at the beginning. Shaka Smart getting that redemption story. That's another thing that's great about sports. I've always been a Shaka Smart fan. I think the fact that he came from a a mid-major level uh, program at VCU where, where they had a lot of success before he left there. Um, you know, and he does just have one of those very, uh, I don't know, he, he has a great personality. He's very charismatic. He's easy to like. And it, it is a shame that things didn't work out at Texas. I never thought that was a great fit anyways. It's just Texas doesn't seem as serious about basketball as Shaka Smart would probably need a place to be. And Marquette sounds like a great fit. And it is nice to see him kind of redeem himself, get his career back on track and have his team in a good position to make a run here. Yeah, I'm I'm really going to be rooting for them because I think that if you look at the top eight teams, and by the way, the number one seeds for this tournament, Alabama was the overall number one. You had Purdue, Houston, Kansas, as you mentioned. The number two line was Arizona, which is another kind of blue blood, even though they haven't won in a long time, but the Lute Olsen years and all that. Marquette, UCLA, obviously their history does not need to be mentioned here, and Texas. So there are a lot of really good schools in that line, and Marquette just doesn't seem like they fit in with all those other schools in terms of basketball success, but they were forced to be reckoned with, so I'm looking forward to it. Now let's go to the actual action itself. So it has changed over the years. It used to be a tournament of 64 for probably my entire life up until recently, I'd say about, what, 10 years ago, they started doing the first four, and it's now a, a, a tournament of 68. I wanted to ask you fundamentally how you felt about the first four model in general. When they first started, I thought it was weird. It just seemed awful. I'm like, what's the point of only adding four teams? This just seems strange. But the as times pass, I've become to like it more and more. One thing, I don't like people calling it the play-in games because it's not a, you're in the tournament. You're in. You, you know what I mean? Like, you're in. This isn't play to get in. You're in. And one thing, too, that it does is it adds an opportunity for these schools that are playing in those games to earn some money um, that they wouldn't get otherwise because they're playing a an even opponent, at least seed-wise, and that that's an extra unit that they'll get for winning that game ahead of the traditional first round, which is a really great opportunity. A lot of people kind of scoff at the, uh, the first four, but I think it is a nice opportunity as far as that goes. And the, another thing I take from it, we get to see some good matchups because it's those are the only games where they are literally the same seed, right? So they should be very evenly matched games. And then it just it, the tournament starts a couple days earlier for all of us, which is great too. I was in the same boat as you about the first four. I really didn't like it at first. And I think what really I didn't like the most was the fact that they called it the first round and they really screwed up all of the nomenclature going forward where they're like, the first day is the second round. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's the first round. Stop it. Like, we're not doing all that. And then they actually course corrected on that. But I want to build on something that you talked about. You talked about earning money. The other thing that I didn't realize that it did up until recently, honestly, was it gives these schools that basically have no chance of winning all these 16 seeds, it gives them a chance to actually win an NCAA tournament game and it gets them exposure because these kids are good basketball players in their own right. Just because they don't play at one of the blue blood schools doesn't mean that they're not great at basketball. And it's awesome to get to see these schools that do not have nearly the same infrastructure and financing as these other blue bloods like Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, to get a little bit of spotlight. And you're right, the games are mostly very, very good. For the 11 seeds, though, what I love about it is basically if you played a season and you're on the bubble, you get a chance now. It's not really a play-in game per se, but okay, we gave you the opportunity. You didn't really show us that you belonged in here in earnest fully, but you're going to get an opportunity to show it and you're going to have to beat another team that is on your level. Another team that basically is a bubble team. That part of it I actually do like because the biggest complaint that I always have is the 65th team always bitching and moaning basically and whining. And now it's like, all right, you actually get the chance to play another team that's in that same realm and you got to beat them to get in. Yeah, well, now it's just the 69th team bitching and moaning, right? I, I mean, know. Yeah, no matter how many teams you let in, the, the, the next couple that didn't make it we're gonna, are going to be upset. But you mentioned these are good basketball teams and we just talked about VCU a minute ago. I'm pretty certain that one of the years that VCU made a run in the tournament, they came out of the first four. Yeah, they did. Like as like an 11 seed, as you said, and and made a run. And I don't know if that was, if it was an Elite Eight run, I don't, but they went deep in the tournament from that round, which was which was awesome to see. Because I think that was something that sort of 
in my mind, that gave legitimacy to those games a little bit. Like, hey, these teams belong here. You know, these teams are in the tournament. Like I said, they belong here. This isn't just some sort of throwaway, irrelevant game that's happening. It matters. And no, I'm excited. The other thing that it does is it gives momentum because you talk about playing an extra game and sometimes in other sports, well, we have to play an extra game, but you get that momentum rolling and then you're facing a team that's been off for five or six days. And now it's like, hey, we just got this big win. What if we made a buzzer beater? And all of a sudden now we're ready to go. So sometimes the six seeds that get the play in game or the they get the first four winner, I feel like they're at a disadvantage because sometimes all it takes, and you said this about Bradley and about conference tournaments, all it takes is to get hot for a few days and you never know. You could make a huge run and sometimes that can be the win that catapults them to a sweet 16 berth. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for kind of getting the butterflies out ahead of time. And I saw it even in the Missouri Valley Conference Tournament because it was a 12-team bracket and the top four seeds all had buys. So the teams that won the games in the first round the day prior they came out and they all the games where they in that second round where they played the top four seeds, all of those games were close. Every single one of them was close. The teams that that won the day prior, I mean, they came out guns ablaze. And you could definitely tell, in my opinion, I thought that, you know, they were in, in a much better frame of mind to compete than the teams that were just getting on the floor for the first time. It makes you wonder if rest in basketball is not nearly the same as it is in football. In football, it's such a physical sport and it's so jarring that getting an extra week off could make the difference between being 80% and 90%. But in basketball, if you're getting an extra day off, that maybe doesn't do anything for you. And again, it gives momentum to these teams that have nothing to lose. That's the other thing, is if you're coming out of the play-in, you have nothing to lose. And if you're one of those teams that it's like you're supposed to win, and that's the thing that I love about the NCAA tournament, is all the rankings are gone. And all you see now are those seeding numbers. And it really throws everything and it makes it different. And you put expectations on teams that have those low numbers. So if you're number two seed, we have expectations of you because you should be beating a vast majority of the teams in this tournament. And that's not how it goes. The number doesn't mean anything. It just tells you where a team is based off of the field. But once you get on the court, all bets are off. And that's why the tournament is so great. And you see so many upsets all the time. Oh, 100%. And to talk about, you know, a team having momentum, I think that basketball is a game of uh, of rhythm, getting into a rhythm and muscle memory. And I think playing, you know, the closer you can put games together while still getting some rest in between is ideal. Um, that's one thing I'm nervous about about Bradley tomorrow night is it's been a week and a half since they've played. I'm a little curious what things look like. Wisconsin just played a few days ago, so they might kind of still have that rhythm going a little bit, but it's it's definitely relevant. And like you said, right now, throw all the rankings out the window. The seeds put you in the tournament. You know, the better you perform through the year, theoretically, you're going to get seeded better, which again, in theory, gives you a better opportunity to advance in the tournament uh, based on position and the teams you're going to have to play along the way. But once they toss that ball up, man, throw it all out the window. You're going to get everybody's best shot every game. I am so friggin' excited. But let me ask you, where does going to an NCAA tournament fall in your sports bucket list? Uh, not as high as you might think it does. And for me, though, it's only because they play the Final Four usually in like a football stadium somewhere. And at this point in time in my life, I mean, the type of ticket that I'd even be willing to pay for, <laughs> I'd probably have to bring binoculars to see what's happening. Opera glasses. And I'd much rather watch it uh, from the comfort of my living room at this point in time. Now, if I, if let's say that I, you know, I was fortunate enough to win courtside seats or something like that to the Final Four, I think it'd be fantastic and I'd really enjoy it. But in the real world, I, I don't know that it would uh, be something I'd be too intrigued by. I was fortunate to go to the Sweet 16 and Elite 8 rounds when they were here back in 2013. Gosh, 10 years ago now. And those were like $600 a ticket. But I was behind one of the baskets, so like a few rows up. So we actually had decent seats. Now, not the greatest because you can't really see as much what's going on on the other side of the court. But the atmosphere was great. I didn't have a team in the running. And it was so awesome to be there and see them cut down the net and stuff like that. And I believe Marquette actually was the team that went to the Final Four that year. That was when Buzz Williams was the coach before he came to Virginia Tech and resurrected our program. And it's just a lot of fun. But had it not been something I had done and I had to decide right now what was on my sports bucket list, it probably would have been down the totem pole. But I have a hot take for you. Going to a Super Bowl not on my sports bucket list. Not for me either, man. Like some of those big time events, they're just not what they're all cracked up to be. I think if you're able to go and enjoy them 
um, in a certain way, like the best possible way with the best seats and the best experience where, you know, you don't have to go through the all the minutia that the ordinary fan does. I think it'd be awesome. But for the normal fan experience, yeah, I'm, I'm not here for that. I, I'd rather, like I said, watch it from the comfort of uh, my own living room. So you like to fill out a bracket. I like to fill out a bracket. And I think that we should do something. I think that you and I should each fill out a bracket and make it public on social media, not for any type of contest, but I think just to keep ourselves honest and to let the listeners and the viewers keep us honest. But if you had to give me a gut feeling about who you think is going to win the national championship, Right now, gun to your head, terrible analogy. Right now, who would it be? Kansas Jayhawks. I have the uh, Kansas Jayhawks pick to win the tournament. I'm in a little, the company I work for, we do like an office pool, a whole company-wide thing. It's fun. I filled it out this morning, and I picked the Kansas Jayhawks to win the tournament. Are you interested in what my final four is? Sure. Okay, so I I did have Alabama in the final four. I had Alabama... I believe I may have had Marquette in the final four. And on the other side, it was Kansas and Houston. So, I mean, I I went pretty chalk for the most part. I mean, I had a few upsets early on, but uh, mine's, mine's chalk most of the way through, which honestly I feel like is the safer way to go if you are trying to win a bracket or something like that. I agree. I think you usually have to go ones and twos a lot of times, maybe some threes. It kind of depends on where teams are seated. Sometimes you get a sneaky seed like Gonzaga's a four. That could be a little bit sneaky, something like that. But I agree with you. So if I had to give you a gut feeling about who I think is going to win, Kansas does stand out to me as well because of everything with Bill Self recently. They're definitely on an emotional ride. But when I see teams like Arizona, they've played a lot of really tough competition. The Pac-12 is actually good. We make fun of it in football, but UCLA and Arizona getting on that two line is pretty special. But I don't do a bracket until the night before. I let all the games play out because we don't pick the first four. So I wait until everything happens. And it's sort of like a Zen experience for me because I don't know enough about it. So I sit down and it's all feel. That's all I do. I sit down and whatever the first name that I write on that paper is, that's right. I do it on a pen and paper. That's the only way to do it. <laughs> you're going to be, you're, you fit right in with our uh, our baseball fans. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. But sometimes there's just a feel about it. And then once it's done, I'm done. I do one bracket. That's it. I don't do more than one. That is it. So the bracket that I have here will be the bracket that I use the entire time because I think you have to have one bracket. And if you win on that bracket, you are the man. And I will say this, my father, when he was working, I won his office pool at 11 years old. That's something to be proud of, man. Uh, Do you have that bracket sheet framed anywhere? Uh, My father does have it. And the reason he has it is because I picked an entire region correct. That was 1995 when UCLA won the national championship. That is incredible, man. That is an awesome, awesome story. You should dust that thing off uh, maybe for next week's show and we could... We could break it down a little bit. That would require my father using technology, which is not something he's very good at. So (laughs) that probably won't happen. But the NCAA tournament is exciting. You all know this. I talked about this last week. Thursday, if you're looking for me, you need to find me. My ass will be on the couch. I will be watching these games. I will have multiple screens up. Who knows what the hell will be going on. But the NCAA tournament will be on. I love it. I love everything about it. And then I'll stop caring about college basketball, probably starting around the Elite Eight, because that's generally when I start to be around a little bit. But for the purposes of this show, we will keep ourselves honest and we will post our bracket. So you can look for that on Twitter at Iceman and Coach is the handle to do that. Let's move on to the NFL. And I know that you and I have wanted to get away from the NFL because, hey, the season's over and and all that. But the offseason has been kind of intriguing to me. And I feel like you and I will have a great discussion about Lamar Jackson because he has been probably the thing that's been in the news the most in terms of the NFL. And I find this situation so intriguing for so many reasons. So if you're listening and you don't know what we're talking about, Lamar Jackson, I believe it was the non-exclusive tender or non-exclusive franchise tag or whatever it's called that the Ravens put on him and he can be offered offers from other teams and the Ravens have the ability to match it. Thus far, zero teams have offered Lamar Jackson a contract. And I just find all of this fascinating. The Ravens are in no hurry to sign him. No other team is in any hurry to do the work for the Ravens, as has been reported by a lot of different people. And dude, you know how many teams could use a freaking quarterback right now? Oh, a ton. Uh, a metric shit ton of teams could use a quarterback right now. But I, I'm going to have a very unpopular take on this. From purely a business standpoint, 
I agree with what the Ravens are doing. I don't blame them for what they're doing one bit because, and, and I think the proof is in the pudding, the fact that no one else has even offered a contract at this point in time. Now, from a human perspective, looking at what Lamar Jackson has done for them and how hard the guy plays and seems like a pretty good dude, it sucks, yes, because he's only got this small window of time to make his money and then try to put himself in a position to live the rest of his life comfortably. But the NFL is a business, and the Baltimore Ravens are a business, and I, I think they are making the right business decision in the way they're handling this. The funny part about this is that the Ravens and Lamar Jackson are both doing what they should be doing. Like, I don't begrudge either side for doing what they're doing. Lamar Jackson should try to get as much money as possible as soon as possible, and the Ravens should not break the bank to try to basically make sure that they keep him. Now, I think the funny part about all of this and not funny haha, is Deshaun Watson is the reason that all of this is happening because the Cleveland Browns were stupid enough to give him $240 million fully guaranteed. He hadn't played in the league for two years. Everything that came with him, the circus that came with him. And Lamar Jackson is now in a position where he may not get paid because he's looking at the market and saying, I want what that guy got because look at all the playing that I've done. And I know he's been injured and all that. And the narrative about his off the field stuff, if you had concerns about that, why did you draft the guy? Like, I, I'm kind of not here for that. But the business element of it, Lamar should be asking them for that. And the Ravens shouldn't be giving them that, giving him that because the market shouldn't be reset by the Browns doing something really stupid. But in a lot of ways it has because Daniel Jones just got $40 million a year. Yeah, it's insane how how every year a quarterback gets signed to the newest, largest contract, resets the market, and then everyone else wants to be uh, be paid uh, relevant to whatever that number was. And it just creates this vicious cycle. I'm telling you right now, the NFL, I think the game is changing. And this thing says Lamar Jackson's probably like five to ten years ahead of uh of where he could really be even more beneficial to a team. I think the game's changing a little bit and that quarterbacks are going to become similar, not the same because it won't be by committee, but similar to running backs. I think they're going to have shorter shelf lives and you're going to have more quarterbacks who are capable of coming in and winning football games like we saw with the 49ers, for example. I think you may see more situations like that where teams are going to have other capable guys. I think you're going to see fewer of the traditional franchise quarterbacks like Aaron Rodgers and guys like that that stay with the team forever. Now, I could be completely wrong, but I just think that you're going to see quarterback. Maybe not, but quarterback salaries may start to come down a little bit because they realize you don't have to have some sort of generational talent to be successful. And it may be a deal where the system supersedes the talent. I don't know, man. Like the way that economics and sports continues to work is these salaries just keep going up and up. I mean, if you look at what Daniel Jones just got, $40 million roughly, not guaranteed, but $40 million per. Patrick Mahomes goes into the Chiefs office with both of his rings on and slides the paper over and said, your move, because basically that's what should happen. Like if he's not making that much money, can you imagine what he's worth? Oh, I mean, yeah, it's it's unbelievable. And uh, in regards to the Chiefs, I saw, saw something the other day that talked about how their GM is handling things masterfully. And they're sort of taking a page out of the Patriots playbook. Where And someone, someone put it very eloquently. They said, the Chiefs now know as a franchise, they're a destination. They are known, you know, they're on a roll right now. They're in a good place. You have to pay a tax to play for the Kansas City Chiefs in the form of taking less salary so that they can keep more talent together to keep winning. And that was a really interesting way to put it, I thought. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if they're able to kind of sustain it. I agree. You have to get creative with your accounting. So they're going to be hiring a lot of CPAs. If you're a CPA out there listening, you might want to get your application into the Kansas City Chiefs because they're going to need it in trying to battle the salary cap. But coach, I just want to give you this. This is not a set of the week, but this is what $40 million bought the New York football giants. And this is from Warren Sharp on Twitter. Daniel Jones is the only quarterback in the modern passing era to play 10 plus games for three consecutive years and throw fewer touchdowns than games played every year. In 2020, 14 games played, 11 touchdowns. In 2021, 11 games played, 10 touchdowns. And last year, a year that we said he massively improved, 16 games played, 15 passing touchdowns. He's the new Kirk Cousins, man. 
And that's who he is. Could be dangerous if in the right system. He may be in the running next year for the DB Cooper Award. It's absolutely unreal what people are willing to pay just for consistency even, right? I mean, because the guy's not putting up dynamic numbers, as you just indicated. I think that people are just terrified of what they may end up with if they don't keep what they have. The thing about the Ravens, though, is shouldn't other teams that want Lamar Jackson put an offer to try to raise the price for the Ravens because they can match it. So they're probably going to match it because I think they do want to keep him. And doesn't that screw them over financially? Yeah, you'd think so. But maybe they're concerned that the Ravens will call their bluff and then they'll have Lamar Jackson for whatever crazy number they offered him. But they want him, though. Like, these, I'm just so baffled that these teams, like the Carolina Panthers, just traded everything to get the number one pick. Now, basically, they traded away what they probably would have had to give up for Lamar Jackson or whatever. But it's it's mind-blowing to me. The Panthers could have just signed Lamar Jackson. Instead, they're going to go on a rookie deal. They're going to take a chance on a guy like Anthony Richardson, probably, sign him to a rookie deal, and just hope and pray that it works out when there's a guy that you can have if you just pay him the money. I, I just don't get it. There's so so many teams out there that should be just ponying up the dough for this guy at this point. If the Ravens aren't going to do it, make it hard on the Ravens at least. Sure. And maybe there's something that we don't know. I'm not sure. But I can tell you this much. I guess a Colts fan is the team that needs a quarterback. I, I don't know if I'd be super ecstatic if they ended up with Lamar Jackson. Just because, it, again, it feels almost like another Band-Aid. Now, it's a Band-Aid with a few more miles on it than the last couple guys. But it just, it, and yes, everyone's one play away. But just because the way he plays the game is explosive and dynamic and it's hard to defend, but it's also dangerous and risky. And I, I don't know that, if I'm the Colts, I don't know if you could afford to take that risk. So you're not going to take the risk on Lamar Jackson because it's too volatile, but you're going to sign Carson Wentz. I just want to you know make sure we're on the same boat here. Just so you know, that's <laughs> terrible too. I'm not a fan of that move either at all. I saw that. Matt Ryan. At least it's not Zach Wilson. Speaking of Zach Wilson, Zach Wilson is probably wondering what he's going to be doing next year. He's either going to be working at the local supermarket or holding a clipboard because Mike White is now a Miami Dolphin and the Jets are all in on getting Aaron Rodgers, which puts them in a very precarious position because free agency opens today and all these quarterbacks are going to get signed. Jimmy Garoppolo now to the Raiders and they're just hoping and praying. They have a deal in place with the Packers and the Jets, all of their chips are in on Aaron Rodgers. And I feel like the Jets are the kind of team where Aaron Rodgers is just going to decide to retire. I don't know if he'll do that. I could see... I can see it being a pretty entertaining situation because he's not going to get the leash that he got in Green Bay with his attitude and his demeanor. I don't know if New York's going to put up with that the way they did in Green Bay. So it'll be really interesting to see what takes place if, in fact, he does end up there. And I mean, I guess the Jets think they're a quarterback away. And so they're going to rent Aaron Rodgers for, for a few years and see what happens. I'm not sure it's a good fit. And Cleve would tell you that, too. Like, I don't think it's a good personality fit because New York is not really a market in which you can go do darkness retreats when things don't work out. They want results. I mean, man, they were calling for Tim Tebow when Mark Sanchez couldn't get it done after the butt fumble game. And that guy went to two AFC championship games in a row. This fan base is salivating for something. And all we've gotten is not just media but just laughingstock of the league. And Aaron Rodgers really doesn't play well with rookies and young guys. That is an extremely young team. There's not a lot of veterans on that team. Do you really see Aaron Rodgers coming in and not just being a diva? No, I mean, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think it's, I agree, I think it's a bad fit. And especially with a young head coach, I just Aaron Rodgers and young head coach or just young people in general don't strike me as a, a recipe for success. I think he could be successful with like an Andy Reid type type guy, which obviously they're pretty well set at the quarterback position. But I think if he played for a veteran coach, it's been around the block. Rodgers seems like the type of guy that respects those people um, and is more open minded to that as opposed to like a Matt LaFleur. Like, you know, from the day that Matt LaFleur walked in the door, I, I imagined it like um, like Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec when he's at the hardware store and the guy walks up and he goes, I know more than you. <laughs> um, I imagine that's what happened at the offices at Green Bay when uh, Matt LaFleur walked in to introduce himself to Aaron Rodgers. I just, I don't know. Like Aaron Rodgers, I, I don't think that he cares as much about winning football games and Super Bowls as the Jets fandom wants him to. And they're going to have to give up, I assume, a lot to get him because Aaron Rodgers is a Hall of Famer. He's going to walk into Canton as soon as he is eligible. And the Jets, I feel like, like are in such a bad position because if they don't get him, 
they are so screwed. Yeah, they've got to make a move because, uh, yeah, Zach Wilson's not the answer. And it would be interesting to see who they have to settle for if uh, they're not able to land Rodgers. I would have taken five years of Derek Carr over a hope and a prayer on two years of Aaron Rodgers because at least you get five solid. I mean, I know that Derek Carr is not a great quarterback. I get it. But he's a solid quarterback. He's definitely improvement over what they've been slopping out there the last few years. And with a young team, you got a guy who's a great locker room presence, gets along with a lot of guys, seemingly well-liked across the entire league. You get five years of that, and you might get a Super Bowl or a deep playoff run. And yeah, maybe you don't win the Super Bowl, but the Jets have to be salivating for just about anything at this point. Think about the list. I'm sitting here in my head just running through the list of people who have played quarterback for the New York Jets over the last like 10 to 15 years. Oh, it's a lot. Right? I mean, I, I have forgotten about a few of them, Gino to be Smith? honest with you. But yeah, Geno Smith uh, played quarterback there. We had you know, we had Tebow, Mark, uh, Sanchez. Mark Sanchez, like you mentioned, Brett Favre, Joe yep. Flacco, mm-hmm. Ryan Fitzpatrick. Yes. Uh, I believe at one point in time. I mean, it's just absolutely insane, right? I mean, Chad Pennington was probably the last like consistent, solid yes. quarterback they have had. And they drafted him. Think about that. Yeah, I mean, so that, I mean, did, did they draft any, any of these other guys up to, did they draft Geno? Yes. And they drafted Mark Sanchez. Now, Mark Sanchez had an opportunity to be good, but I think Rex Ryan got in the way of that. I mean, their formula for that was good defense, and Mark Sanchez didn't have to do a whole lot, and they just messed that up. But that organization can't seem to get it right, and I'm just, I'm waiting for Aaron Rodgers to retire so that Jets fandom are like, well, what do we do now? Because we just kind of put all of our eggs in this basket, and we hired this buffoon, Nathaniel Hackett, as our offensive coordinator. Yeah, can you imagine the conversations that are happening, like, on the streets of uh, New York or, like, in a cab, or these guys are going into work in the morning, where I'm talking, like, blue-collar guys, right, going into work work in the morning and be like, here, we're getting Rogers. Yes. You know, and going on about it and thinking it's going to be the savior. Yeah. What happens to those guys if this doesn't pan out? If only we could go live to Cleve as soon as the news drops and whatever happens with Aaron Rodgers, I would love to get his take in the moment. Hot mic, as he would call it. That would be wonderful. Would be wonderful. Well, speaking of people that are pissed off, diehard baseball fans. Now, you and I talked about baseball last week, and it was one of the best things we've done. It was actually a great conversation. I thought we were very insightful. And as we've found out over the last week, we pissed off a lot of people. We kicked a hornet's nest that is baseball diehards, and you wanted to revisit the pitch clock. And let's do that right now. We talked last week about the pitch clock and not really understanding the outrage over why people don't like it. And I kind of want to explain the pitch clock a little bit. And I know that it's been touted as it's going to save time on games. And yes, that is a byproduct that we're seeing in the statistics right now in spring training. Granted, it's only spring training. But I think the real byproduct is to make games more exciting by having more runs, getting more value on actually getting a hit. You remember, man, when we watched baseball 20 years ago, guys going first to third, guys doing hit and runs, those things actually mattered. When you got on base via a hit, it mattered. Balls in play continue to go down. That's what the pitch clock is trying to do. It's trying to make baseball more entertaining. Why is anybody against that? I'm not sure. And I think that you know people assume or make the comments, like we said last week, that if you like the pitch clock, you don't know baseball, you don't understand baseball. I love baseball. I love small ball. I, I'm sad that small ball is not really a thing anymore. Sack bunning to get a guy over, stealing bases, things like that. I mean, it just does not exist. It's become a, a feast or famine type of game. Yes. Now, is the pitch clock going to change that? I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Well, it's to be determined. One thing we talked about last week, though, we, we made it more maybe about the hitter as opposed to the pitcher last week. I, I got to think for the most part as a pitcher, you might like it a little bit because it allows you to get into a rhythm. I think one thing that probably happens a lot out there on the bump is you get in your own head a little bit once in a while. I mean, it's a long season. And I think that, you know, a lot of times, like especially in a game like baseball where it's sort of this chess match that gets played between the ears. And the more time you have to think about stuff, stuff sometimes the worse off it is. You know, if you've got to get on there and throw a pitch every 20 seconds or so, I, I think that's that can only necessary that can only be beneficial in the long run. You get into a rhythm, you're feeling good, you're not thinking, you're just executing. I, I don't see what could be bad about that. Yeah, it's going to be weird. People are going to try to take advantage of it in weird ways, but I think that it'll settle in and ultimately it will be a good thing. I'm curious though. I want to hear some actual counterpoints 
from listeners out there that that are absolutely against the pitch clock. I, I want to hear why you're against it, how you think it hurts the game. You know, we've got the the hotline number scrolling across the bottom of the screen. So get on the phone, call the operator, get out your rotary phone or whatever it is. Or maybe, maybe you're still crafting your letters via feathered quill to send to us with the Pony Express to let us know what your takes are on the pitch clock as you're sitting there writing by candlelight to tell us that we don't understand baseball or we don't love baseball. I think that this is ultimately going to be a good thing. Like everything else, it's going to work itself out and settle in and it's going to make the game better. The thing is, though, is you hear the players and the managers talking about the fact that the players are already adapting. Like I think it was Aaron Boone. They had a spring training game at some facility that didn't have a clock because, you know, they're playing in the middle of nowhere. They're not playing at their normal facilities. And the players actually continued to speed up. They didn't actually need the clock to be kept on because I think they're getting used to it now that it's fast paced. I mean, you're seeing the stats that are coming out. I think it's Jeff Pass who was talking about they shaved an average of like 22 minutes off of games. That's huge. And I know that people will say like, well, it doesn't have the same feel to it. There's not going to be the same tension. Yes, there is. When they get to October, there will still be tension. And honestly, if they wanted to, they could get rid of the pitch clock for just the postseason if they wanted to. But through 162, think about that, 162 games. The NFL is 17 games. Think about how many people complained about adding an extra game. 162 games. It's almost every damn day for six months. They got to do something. You can't watch every single game. It's just not feasible. Baseball fans have gotten to this place, diehards I'm talking about, where they can't change anything. I don't understand that at all. I mean, to that point, you and I talked about Shohei Otani, and I asked a bunch of people offline, is Shohei Otani a great thing for baseball? And almost unanimously, everybody said he's probably the best thing that's ever happened to baseball. And yet you and I talk about it last week, and you get more people disliking that take than liking that take. Like, these can't be real baseball fans, can they? I wouldn't think so. I mean, we said it last week, evolve or die. Baseball cannot survive on the backs of only diehard fans. It simply cannot. And I understand that I'm a traditionalist and things that are near and dear to me, I hate to see them change. You want to just clinch onto it and hold on as much as you can because you feel like the game that you love is going to become something completely different. But I'm just telling you, hang in there. It's going to be okay. It'll be weird for a little bit. Like you said, you know, the players are already adjusting. I think it's ultimately going to be a better brand of baseball. Uh, yes, we're still going to get drama. There's still going to be the buildup. I mean, yeah, you might, you know, if anything, I'll, I'll give you this. You might lose a little bit of the gamesmanship that comes, you know, that happens in some of these at-bats with pitchers stepping on, stepping off, guys getting in out of the box or whatever. But ultimately, that's not good for the game. Yeah, you understand it as a diehard fan, but Joe Blow, that it's not crazy about baseball, that's thinking about giving a try, he turns on, he's going to be like, I've just watched this for four minutes and nothing's happened. Yes. You know, that's miserable. Not to mention, there's going to be new gamesmanship. Sports is always about trying to win in the margins. These athletes, these managers, they're going to try to find a way to figure out how to game the system. No pun intended. It's going to happen with this. So just let it friggin' happen. Baseball needs a jump. It needs a juice. And I know people are going to say, uh, TikTok is a fad. It's not a fad. Short attention spans are not a fad. TikTok itself may be a fad. Maybe in five years it won't be around, but attention spans are getting shorter because of shit like this, and I'm holding up my phone. Our phone allows us to have information at our fingertips in seconds. Baseball doesn't do anything in seconds, and for a sport to last like that by just resting on your laurels because 150 years ago we did it that way, yes, we did. Literally every other professional sport has updated and evolved from things that they did 150 years ago. Why baseball people cannot do it, it pains me because I do love baseball so damn much, but I hate those people. Well, 150 years ago, people didn't have anything else to do, right? So, But go out to the ballpark for four hours, five hours, whatever it was, and watch a ball game. Right now, today, like it's content overload. You have to make a concerted effort these days to do nothing. Like, I mean, you really have to try to just avoid anything and do nothing. But talking about other sports evolving, I mean, once upon a time, they didn't wear helmets in football. I would say that was a pretty good change. Hockey, they didn't wear helmets in hockey. Hell, they didn't wear helmets in baseball. You don't hear anybody bitching about that, that it makes the game worse or something. I mean, I get that's a safety issue. 
there there's so many changes that happen in games. I don't know why this one's the hill that diehard baseball fans want to die on. It just doesn't seem like it's worth it to me. And look what they've done to me. I've gone from Mr. Professionalism. I'm upset. I'm angry. My blood is boiling. I'm a powder keg waiting to explode. But I'm again, I'll, I'll give them this. I'm with you on this, diehards. I'm against robot umpires. I'm, I'm against robot umpires. I want the human element, even though it's flawed. I, I want it. I enjoy it. I like the altercations that happen between players and umpires, between fans and managers and umpires. It's great. It's absolutely great. Also, another thing that's unique to baseball that I'm a fan of is the manager wearing the same uniforms the players wear. Uh, you couldn't get away with it in any other sport at all. It works in baseball, and I love it. I want to see Bill Self wearing a Kansas Jayhawk with nothing else underneath it, just the tank top on the sidelines. It'd be so weird. You think about that, right? I mean, or if like Andy Reid's dressed up in like helmet shoulder pads or whatever on the <laughs> sideline. <laughs> that would be insane. Like a, 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 a hockey coach. Uh, it's just so strange. I mean, I'm just glad, you know, as a wrestling, as a wrestling coach, I'm happy that uh, I didn't have to wear the uniform while sitting in the corner coaching. That probably would have. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, that just wouldn't have ended well for anyone. It would have been like Scott Steiner sitting over there in the corner. <laughs> That's right, man. That's right. Now, give me Rick Steiner. I'll be over there barking like That's a dog. That's what it was. Oh, man. How did I mess that up? Oh. Oh, oh. And with that, it's time for OTW. OTW of the week. As always, we start with the Iceman's stat of the week, Coach. I'm sure you are familiar with the North Carolina Tar Heel basketball team. I do believe that I've heard of them. Well, as you know, when we first started the show, I asked you a fundamental question about college football and preseason rankings. Well, preseason rankings also are a part of men's basketball and women's basketball. And North Carolina became the only AP preseason number one team to have multiple three-game losing streaks in a single season and became the first preseason number one team to miss the NCAA tournament since NC State in 1974-1975 season. It was a disastrous season for UNC. They declined an invitation to the National Invitational Tournament, and it could not have gone any worse for a school that had such high hopes coming into the season losing Roy Williams a couple years ago, they have a lot of work to do. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't happen to a better group of people, though, if I'm being honest. And it, it makes me chuckle a little bit, them turning down the NIT bid. It's like, come on, man. Like, are you really, you have your nose in the air that much that you can't come play in this tournament? And I mean, I would have loved nothing more to see one of these mid-majors that made the NIT go to Chapel Hill and beat them. That would have been sweet. Now, I mean, they would have, if they were focused and locked in, I mean, they would have maybe had their way with the NIT field, honestly. They're, they're still a good basketball team, even though they didn't really perform consistently throughout the season. But I mean, in one way, I'm pissed about it. I mean, they do what they want. That's fine. I think they're cowards for it. But I I, I think why it pisses me off is being a mid-major homer. I, I, would, I think they took the opportunity away from someone to go in there and give them a game. And the sound of those trumpets means it is time for Coach's Pick of the Week. Coach, you started a season 0-0-0 last year, and you chose the Wake Forest Demon Deacons over the aforementioned Syracuse Orangemen in your first pick of this new cycle. And I'm happy to report to you and to everybody, you are undefeated for the first time in the history of Coach's Pick of the Week. Hear ye, hear ye, peasants. All I can say is you better get used to it. I've got a couple of winners for you this week from the hardwood. It is March Madness after all. We're doing two picks this week, Iceman. The first pick, okay, and both of these teams are out of the South region. I'm taking Furman over Virginia. That's a 13 seed over a 4 seed. Furman over My Virginia, man. and I am also taking number 12 Charleston over number 5 San Diego State. Those are, those are two very, very good veteran-led mid-major programs. Charleston went like 30-3 and three on the year. I know they play in a lesser league, but I mean, you've got to really be playing good basketball to win that many games, no matter who you're playing. Furman and Charleston with first-round upsets in the NCAA tournament. The Furman Paladins and I believe the Charleston Cougars 
upsets in the first round of the NCAA tournament. My man, anytime UVA gets upset, I'm a happy camper. So let it be written. So let it be done. We have come to the end, my friends. Another great episode. March Madness is right around the corner. Coach is undefeated. There's a lot of things happening here. I feel like we are just hitting our stride. It's funny, at the end of football season, I don't know about you, I somewhat internally worried how we're gonna navigate these seas. And as I told you offline, there's almost too much content to get into that I'm almost overwhelmed. And boy, it's just, it's a fun ride, man. I'm having a blast. And baseball fans are going to hate the shit out of me this week. That's okay, man. I love it. I'm here for it. And I think that uh, one thing that's nice about being uh, after football season is I feel like we have a lot of freedom to talk about sort of whatever we want to. During football season, it's the biggest thing going on in the country in the sports world at that time. And so there is there's almost an obligation, right, to make sure we're focusing on football, whether it's college football or the NFL. And we both enjoy football, too. I'm really enjoying this so far. It'll be interesting to see how we continue to evolve throughout the rest of the, the spring into the summer before football comes because there's just a lot of places out there we can go with this, man, and I cannot wait. Same here, man. And speaking of things I cannot wait for, Thursday, I don't know what you do. Thankfully, I work from home so I can have the games on in the background, but a vast majority of, I would assume, men in this country happen to be sick on Thursday. So if the coach is on the mend at the end of the week, it is because he has March Madness-itis and needs to check out those games. But for the rest of you, just make sure you're not doing anything stupid if you call out of work, like being seen on social media or seeing your boss at a bar or something like that. Just play it straight. Sit your ass on your couch in your home. You have so many devices. Just watch all the games and enjoy them. Coach, do you have any parting thoughts for Ice Time Nation this week? Just excited about the the tournament kicking off this week. And I tell you what, folks, if uh, if you're not busy Saturday evening, tune in to ESPN. Yes, the mothership, ESPN, uh, the NCAA wrestling finals, the championship round, the 10 championship matches will be taking place uh, live on ESPN on Saturday night. I encourage you to check it out. Expose yourselves a little bit to the great sport of wrestling. You'll see some really good ones and it'll be fun to watch. So uh, looking forward to the basketball, looking forward to the wrestling and looking forward to recapping the weekend that was next week here on Iceman and Coach. I may be checking that game out. Before we get you out of here, don't forget to support the Pub Time Podcast. You can find them wherever you find your podcast. Visit the Matty Ice Media Network website. MattyIceMedia.com is the way to do that. Check out the podcast, buy some merch, all that good stuff. We definitely appreciate it. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to do that thing that every single YouTube video asks you to do. Like, subscribe, all that stuff. If you want to call into the show, 703-718-631 four is the way to do that. Iceman and Coach is all over social media. We're all over the sports landscape. We are the best damn sports show in the business. And as always, folks, we hope this finds you well and safe. This is Iceman and Coach. The opinions and viewpoints expressed on the Iceman and Coach Sports Show are those of Matt Freights, Brad Powell, and their guests, and not necessarily those of the Matty Ice Media Network. The Iceman and Coach Sports Show is exclusively owned by Matt Freights and Brad Powell and is brought to you by the Matty Ice Media Network.